Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy, constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our conversation about contempt for Congress and executive privilege, two important facets of the law that uh, pertain to what's happening in the January 6th committee. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. He'll be joining us as well. It is January the 19th, and on this day in 2004, at an energetic evening rally, Democratic presidential hopeful Howard Dean admits a noise that many would claim ended his career in electoral politics. The Dean scream, or I have a scream, (laughs) as it quickly became known, was a unique and revealing moment in the early 21st century American politics. A former three-term governor of Vermont, Dean was seen as the candidate of the left and was the only Democrat who openly criticized the Iraq war in his campaign for the party's nomination. He was considered a front-runner despite conservatives' attempts to depict his campaign as a left-wing freak show, but furnished, uh, third in the, it finished third in the Iowa caucuses. Despite losing his first contest of the primary to John Edwards and eventual winner John Kerry, Dean took the stage that night and, and with a night with enthusiasm. He ended his remarks by fervently cataloging the contest yet to come, concluding with a shout of, and they were going to Washington, D.C. to take back the House. Yeah, his voice cracked on the final yeah, turning the word into a bizarre yelp that was broadcast and before long replayed hundreds of times on news programs all over the country. Ironically, nobody in the room with Dean noticed anything out of the ordinary. They witnessed what seemed like nothing more than an impassioned speech with Dean's famous scream drowned out by cheers that filled the room. Dean's audio setup, however, isolated his voice for the television audience, making the Dean scream stand out jarringly and comically. The clip became a sensation on cable news, discussed and replayed countless times over the week between the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary, a perfect gift for Dean's detractors. Although the extent to which the incident affected Dean's performance in the primary is impossible to fully determine. He has already underperformed in Iowa in the time of the speech and would underperform again in New Hampshire in a few days later. Dean's campaign never regained its early momentum and is now remembered primarily for having I Have a Scream speech. (laughs) Kerry won the primary and lost the general, giving President George W. Bush a second term. So there you have it. One scream, kind of the primal scream of the campaign, and uh, Dean was out. Well, Wall Street's, uh, we've got to cover what's going on financially here. Wall Street's main indexes fell sharply on Tuesday as weak results from Goldman Sachs, weighed on financial stocks and tech shares, continued their sell-off to start the year as U.S. Treasury yields rose to milestones. Uh, Goldman Sachs shares tumbled after the investment bank missed quarterly profit expectations amid weak trading activity. The financial sector, which has been one of the better performing groups in 2022, slumped. Benchmark U.S. Treasury yields jumped to two-year highs and two-year yields breached 1% as traders prepared for the Federal Reserve to be more aggressive in tackling unabated inflation, which they're going to have their meeting on January 25th. The steep ascent in yields to start 2022 is uh, we weighed particularly on tech and growth stocks whose future expected cash flows are discounted more sharply as yields rise. The hot inflation prints have spooked the market that the Fed is going to move, and so we're going to see this rise in yields, said Mona Mahan, senior investment strategy at Edward Jones. According to preliminary data, the S&P lost 83 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 530, I think it was 43 points at the end. A Bank of uh, America survey showed that fund managers have cut their overweight positions in tech to their lowest levels since 2008. Not high expectations for the markets right now, and it looks like um, futures are up uh, about 80 uh, right now. 
they're indicating probably we're going to have what they call in the investment business a dead cat bounce uh, down 543 up 80 hmm not uh, probably end up the day negative would be my guess so uh, economic confidence fell to 97.3 in this month's Rasmussen uh, Report Economic Index, nearly two points lower than December. January's decline follows two consecutive months of gains since hitting 96.6. Uh, enthusiasm about the economy surged under former President Donald Trump, reaching a high of, get this, 147.8 in January 2020 before tumbling after coronavirus lockdown threw Americans out of work and closed many businesses. By November 2020, it had recovered to 126, but dropped sharply in three months after Joe Biden was elected. The index fell to 97.8 in February before beginning a three-month rebound that looked like the index took the index to 123 in May, following, followed by a five-month streak of declines. So it looks like uh, what, what's going on right now is uh, the yield of the Biden administration. We're seeing a reduction in markets, a reduction in consumer confidence. And uh, I think this all splashes on the president's policies, uh, but, but economic as well as other policies as well. Republicans' uh, Governor uh, DeSantis is having some fun poking fun at Democrats. Governor DeSantis is now selling Escape to Florida T-shirts on his campaign website, mocking several prominent Democrats who recently traveled to the Sunshine State amidst the surge in the Omicron variant. The shirts are intended... Uh, the the shirts are intended to highlight the hypocrisy of the Democrat lawmakers who have called for COVID-19 restrictions and mask mandates while enjoying Florida's lax policies. For example, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or Sandy the bartender, was photographed earlier this month partying maskless at a crowded drag bar in Miami Beach. This was after she was seen without a mask enjoying a cocktail outside with her boyfriend at a sushi restaurant. Anyhow, I'm happy, though, that Florida is a place where people know they can come and where they can live like normal people, he Santa said. He touted Florida as the freest state in the United States during his State of the State address to the joint session of the legislature Wednesday in Tallahassee. Certainly right about that. We're so grateful for his leadership here in Florida. Well, the U.S. 5G rollout is hitting some turbulence. Uh, what is 5G, by the way? Well, good question. In, in the history of cell networks, first came OG, then 2G, then 3G, helped connect phones to the Internet. 4G made it possible for smartphones to stream more, but 5G is the latest and greatest. It's up by to 100 times faster than 4G. It's quicker downloads, clearer pictures, more bandwidth, et cetera. Just, it's going to be great. So uh, today, AT&T and Verizon, well, that was yesterday, two of the uh, U.S.'s biggest wireless carriers are rolling out their 5G service, but people are saying, what do you mean? Don't, not so fast. Radio frequencies are, affect planes, and the planes need uh, that frequency for safety and navigation. Airlines and the FAA are making frantic air traffic control hand waves to try to slow the rollout. Airlines warned it could cause catastrophic delays and cancellations, and a number of them are playing it safe. Meanwhile, AT&T is saying they, they're frustrated by the FAA's inability to do what nearly 40 countries have already done, still to agree to compromise. And that was, so uh, no 5G access within two miles of the, some runways. That would be the compromise. Good news for those hoping to avoid more flight delays cancellations and even disruptions to the U.S. economy. Bad news for those who want to download every episode of The Office before taking a flight. I think it's a minor inconvenience, and if that's uh, what we need in order to get 5G going here in the United States, uh, let's do it, in my opinion. So no uh, connection of 5G within two miles of the airport. Let's get going. Well, while speaking to reporters on Tuesday, Senator Joe Manchin stated there are already laws and rules in place to ensure people have the right to vote. We have that, he said. And even though people act like we're going to obstruct people from voting, that's not going to happen, said Manchin. He was asked, uh, there, there are a lot of people out there who are saying that you're making it so they're not going to be able to vote in the next election. Well, he responded, the law is there, the rules are there, and basically the government... The government will stand behind them and make sure they have the right to vote. We have that. The things they're talking about now are in court. Mark Elias has an awful lot in court. 
The courts have struck down, like Ohio, they've struck down the gerrymandering, things that are happening. Okay, we act like we're going to obstruct people from voting. That's just not going to happen, said Manchin. So it uh, looks like uh, the that would indicate that there's no support now for this federal voting law uh, that the uh, Biden administration is proposing. Well, the White House is planning a new communication strategy as President Joe Biden faces a total collapse of his approval ratings, citing senior administration officials. NBC News reported Tuesday that the White House is exploring new ways to communicate directly with the American people. Advisors expressing the need for Biden to talk more to people directly instead of one-dimensional speeches from the White House. The report revealed citing his greatest political strength as empathy <laughs> and the ability to connect with ordinary Americans. They really said that. These people are out of touch. Biden's approval numbers are only getting worse as he approaches the one-year anniversary in office. 50% of Americans in CBS News' YouGov survey revealed they were frustrated by the Biden presidency. 52% said Biden made the economy worse, and 58% said he made inflation worse. The survey taken January 12th to 14th, a Quinnipiac poll, uh, released uh, last week, showed Biden with only 33% approval rating of his job performance. The White House has already tried to enact more social media-focused strategy by pursuing appearances with influencers like Olivia Rodrigo, whoever she is, the Jonas Brothers, Benny's drama Cooper, the intern character, and YouTube stars, including makeup artists and wild animal experts. The new communication strategy includes its own pitfalls, however, as Biden frequently makes gaffes and stumbles when he's speaking off script. You know, so they're blaming it on a communication strategy. How about just the content the, uh, of uh, the message? What about the, this, these uh, fascist policies, these, co these socialist policies that they're trying to enact? That's the problem. It's the content. It's the meat of the thing. It's not the presentation. So you can go ahead and try and have a communication strategy and change things all you want, but inevitably the American people are not buying what the Biden administration is selling. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Higher Senior Resources at the Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way towards keeping seniors connected in the community and with each other. Serving all of Collier County, the Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding resources and services that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers, empowering seniors to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Programs are offered free of charge in a safe, welcoming space and focus on fellowship, enrichment and wellness, continuing education and meeting basic needs through offerings such as daily hot lunch, health screenings, and counseling services. So whether you're looking for referrals to services or a vibrant place to make friends, enjoy community support, or learn something new, Collier Senior Resources at the Golden Gate Senior Center is your Collier Senior Center. 
To learn more about programs and services, please visit CallYourSeniorResources.org. That's CallYourSeniorResources.org. Or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4534. That's 252-3534. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more and download the app from the choicesocial.us website. Choicesocial.us. Coming up, going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob is an author, constitutional scholar, and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. So we've been talking about uh, everything from Fifth Amendment to uh, contempt for Congress and executive privilege. I want to continue the conversation. so pertinent to what's happening right now in the January 6th uh, subcommittee. What about the contempt case against Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows? Yeah, that case introduces uh, another complexity because Meadows initially produced documents. Uh, then he declined to testify. So it's possible that he changed his mind uh, because Trump was pretty angry that uh, Meadows disclosed that Trump had tested positive for COVID during the presidential debates. But in any event, the House voted contempt charges against Meadows and asked the Justice Department to seek a grand jury indictment. Then Meadows turned around and filed a countersuit, said that Congress is demanding personal records from telecommunications companies. Those are the phone companies and Internet service providers. And that, he says, requires a warrant. Uh, in response, the House invoked this uh, case back in the 70s, U.S. v. Smith, which established something we've talked about before. It's called the third-party doctrine, mm -hmm. namely a person loses his expectation of privacy in information that the person voluntarily gives to a third party, such as telephone companies or Internet service providers. So there's one more complexity in the Meadows case. Yeah, so so can Congress get all information that's gathered by third parties? The court decisions and the and the statute uh, distinguish between three types of uh, third-party data. The first is the content of phone calls and emails, and that does require a warrant. The second, however, is what's called metadata. And again, we've talked about this in the past. Mm -hmm. And that is, who did you call? When did you call them? For how long? But not the content. And metadata does not require a warrant. And then the third exception to the metadata rule is locational data, such as tracing your whereabouts based on information from cell towers. And there's a recent case, uh, about three years old, Carpenter versus U.S., which ensures that we do have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the totality of our physical movements. So the government is not permitted to track us hmm. using cell phone data without a warrant. So Meadows' case right now is pending, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, indeed. So can executive privilege be claimed by a former president, for example, President Donald Trump? Well, Former presidents can certainly raise executive privilege claims, but the claims are going to be weaker uh, if they're not supported by the current president, especially if they don't relate to national security, foreign affairs, highly secret matters that were solely within the purview of the president. In Trump's case, uh, conspiring to invalidate or delay the certification of election results, uh, that's the charge. That doesn't relate, of course, to uh, foreign affairs or national security. 
um, nor does fomenting a riot, if in, if indeed that could be proven. Uh, executive privilege, by the way, is often used as a counterweight, something the executive can use against Congress, because Congress has a lot of political leverage. You know, Congress can reject the president's nominees. Congress can refuse to fund his programs, mm-hmm. threaten impeachment. Former presidents are immune from those pressures. And so they don't need executive privilege as a counterweight. Hmm. They might, therefore, invoke the privilege not to discourage congressional overreaching, but, so the theory goes, simply to protect the president's uh, reputation. So, yes, the short answer is former presidents do can raise those claims, but they're weaker than if the current president were to raise them. Ah, that's so interesting, Bob. Thank you for that. Of course, this president could be a candidate for president again, which kind of complicates the issue as well. Indeed, yes. So what's the latest from the courts on executive privilege? December 10th, uh, unanimous opinion from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals rejected uh, Trump's bid to keep uh, his documents secret from the House Committee. So the court held that a a dispute between a current and past president ordinarily is going to be resolved in favor of the current president. And according to the judges, Biden showed that secrecy was uh, not in the national interest, that Congress had a vital interest in scrutinizing the uh, January 6th attack, and the requested documents were relevant and were not available elsewhere. And the court went on to say that Trump failed to establish that he'd be irreparably damaged and that the balance of interest uh, weighed against disclosure. So the next step, of course, is Supreme Court review. Uh, Trump's lawyers argue, will argue that the House investigation has a political rather than a legislative purpose. And, of course, a legislative purpose is required for the committee to be involved in this investigation. Interesting. And did I read also that uh, he's also the uh, Trump lawyers have asked for a delay in the release of this information? Yes, and that's uh, <clears throat> that's the uh, the uh, wild card in this whole this whole thing, and that is, will the Republicans succeed in what they're doing? Uh, Trump may be victorious, no matter which way these contempt cases go, mm-hmm. because the contempt cases take some time to be resolved, and the Republican lawyers are going to delay that as much as they can. And if the Republicans take control of the House in the 2022 midterms, then the new speaker, Kevin McCarthy most likely, uh, will shut down the January 6th investigation. So, you know, my prediction is that Trump will probably lose the legal battles, but he's going to win the political fight by throwing a few grains of sand into the machinery of, uh, of Congress. Yeah. And, and I should also add, I don't believe that Congress has gathered at this point sufficient evidence to hold, to hold Trump criminally liable for aiding or abetting uh, the Capitol riots. Right. It, it is a somewhat closer call whether the emails disclosed by Meadows suggest that he committed, that Trump committed a felony by impeding Congress's uh, official count of the electoral votes. Yeah, so That'll interesting. That'll be the issue if it, if it ever gets there. So, Bob, uh, uh, to me, the uh, this subcommittee, the January 6th committee, just appears to be kind of a, a, a political ploy on the part of the Democrats to try to smear the, the reputation of Pro- President Donald Trump and, and assure that he won't be a candidate for presidency going forward. That's the way it appears to me, and I think there's, they can make a good case. It's not legitimate because they've disallowed, Nancy Pelosi's disallowed the nominees to be on the committee to make it a bipartisan committee which I think is against the uh, the House rules. Is this committee legitimate? Well, you know, it's, it's legitimate in the sense that the House has set the committee up and the entire chamber has assigned to the committee certain responsibilities. But from a political uh, posture, I think you're right that because of the partisan nature of the committee, it does cast considerable doubt on whatever the committee comes up with. My guess is 
that uh, we're not going to be faced with that because, uh, as I mentioned, the Republicans are likely to take control of the House, and there goes the committee. Yeah. It'll be uh, it'll be disbanded. And I think Trump's lawyers uh, will probably be successful in delaying things long enough um, to uh, to have that uh, come to pass. It is a separate question as to whether Trump, in fact, is uh, guilty of that which he has been charged with. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my views are somewhat different than yours. I do think right. he's culpable, but I agree that the committee has been uh, – has been set up in a partisan manner, and that diminishes its credibility. Yeah, it's so interesting. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute. This has been such a fascinating conversation, Bob. Cato.org, again, is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, not only building a new performing arts center in downtown Naples, but also bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you can get tickets now by visiting the website golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. So we usually start off with uh, some good news from Andrew. So uh, anything on your mind? <laughs> well, today was a, a tough day for that, Bob, but uh, let, me, let me just try to do that. Uh, I think the best news I have, the good news I have today is we're not Australia. Uh, I think that's the good news. America has uh, clearly shown that even though we are going through some serious issues generated by our federal government suppression of many uh, of many personal freedoms I, that can't be denied the mandates the mask uh, mandates and so forth but if we look at some of the other c- countries in what we call western civilization uh, they are in a much worse situation uh, primarily because in our constitution the government is not the uh, agent of our rights our rights exist either from god depending on your point of view or they naturally exist and the government does not give them. 
in many of these other countries, the government determines what is a right. We can see that happening in, uh, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, France, uh, uh, pretty much across the wide expanse of Western, where the government is the author of rights. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to recognize that America is significantly different. These countries aren't like us. We are different. Now, I certainly would agree with many that we're, we're going in the wrong direction. Uh, but again, I think we have to clearly recognize that that difference between the United States of America and these other nations in Western civilization. You know, I think that's such an important point. Uh, and again, we can be grateful for our founders and for the Constitution that uh, the rule of law, which uh, assures, first of all, First uh, First Amendment rights, the right to free speech and for uh, due process, although that's being so violated with January 6th uh, uh, detainees right now. It's just incredible how, in, in so many ways, we're seeing this kind of slip away from us. Well, speaking of that, I just read a number this morning that indicated that a senator had confirmed that there's 575 uh, people incarcerated without charges uh, as a result of the investigation surrounding January 6th. Uh, to me, this is an outrage. Yep. Uh, we, we walk around uh, screaming at the uh, the damage being done to the Uyghurs in China, and I think that's a, 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 a reasonable thing to lament. Uh, but when we look at what's happening with some of these people who are no more guilty of a crime than uh, the crime is simply trespassing, uh, if that is a crime, uh, and we're looking at a nation that is capable of moving in the same direction as China did with his ugly population in the western provinces, Bob. I know. And I don't know if you followed the story about uh, Ashley Babbitt, but uh, now it's come out that she was actually admonishing everyone to stay, to stand down, do not uh, uh, create violence. And she was actually trying to uh, reduce the perpetration of crimes there in the Capitol. And then she was shot dead in the Capitol, and uh, the apparently the guy that shot her, Boyd his name is, uh, was actually, uh, he said, well, I, I don't want to have an interview without my attorney there, so they finally just said, well, that's okay, we're just not going to conduct the interview to get your side of the story, so they just said, they just exonerated him from any kind of guilt. He shot her point blank. It's just incredible. I, I would offer, Bob, that it's the first time in American history where a police officer has shot and killed an unarmed person and there was no meaningful investigation to determine whether or not a crime was committed. Uh, this may be the first time that's, that's ever happened. Uh, Ashley Babbitt was not armed. Uh, she was not a threat, as you cited. <clears throat> she was actually trying to uh, admonish anyone who was breaking windows and doing damage, uh, and yet she was shot with no warning uh, by a police lieutenant of the, the Capitol Police, Bob. Just an outrageous situation. Let, let me just return to Australia for a second. Sure. I- Excuse me, my, my little horse this morning. Uh, I built my uh, earlier comments about Australia around their response to, uh, uh, to, to Djokovic, and uh, Djokovic, and they're sending him back to Serbia. Uh, now, we could debate whether or not he should have been inoculated, vaccinated. Uh, but on the other hand, he had had COVID. He had a natural immunity. Uh, and this, to me, was certainly a, uh, a high-handed attempt to uh, to damage the icon, to show the rest of the Australians uh, that even the biggest of them cannot resist uh, the government pressures. Uh, and I think we're looking at a, a process that is going to be extended into the French Open for Djokovic. So we're looking at a, a contamination uh, that is worldwide almost in terms of the oppression of government. Uh, and they're going to use Djokovic as a, uh, as a case study almost, a model of just how serious the government is and how serious the citizens must take these suppressions. Right now, there are riots, or let's call them at least demonstrations, all across Europe right. uh, about the, the mask and the, the vaccine mandates. Um, and this is being given very little press in America, that there is a worldwide outrage about the what seems to be almost a conspiratorial uh, response of governments in Western civilization. Bob. That's such a great point. And, and quite frankly, I mean, we've seen this before, but the fact of the matter is if they forbid him from playing in the French Open, I wonder how the populace is going to respond to this. They may actually boycott the event. I mean, yeah, there is there is two sides. There are two, you know, just because they decide they're going to keep him out of the tournament doesn't mean the people will just respond and be uh, and decide, well, that's, you know, that's just life. <laughs> they could actually, they could, you know, we've seen this professional football. We've seen it with professional basketball here in the United States. 
there can be uh, uh, some reactions to uh, these government positions. Well, I'm, I'm optimistic that you're right about this. I, I hope there is some pushback. Uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, Australia has one global event that draws the focus of the, uh, the international media and, and the involvement of the international media, and that's the Australian Tennis Open. Yeah. Uh, almost no one worldwide cares about Australia except for that, uh, that Australian Tennis Open. Right. And whether or not we are tennis fans or not, it is the most significant worldwide event for Australia. To suggest that this is merely Djokovic being selfish and, you know, trying to uh, 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 impose his will on Australia, I think is nonsense. I, I think Djokovic is an important part of the Australian cultural model. He's won the Australian Open nine times. And I think whoever wins it this year, if it doesn't contain uh, the competitor Djokovic, it, it will not be the same victory. Bob. Yeah, great, great observation. Uh, Jason, you're moving right now to Biden. I mean, he's now, apparently they said they're going to get him some communication advice. They're going to uh, redo his messaging. I mean, to me, it's just so absurd because I think the fact of the matter is the American people do not like the message. It's not how it's delivered. They don't want socialism. They don't like fascism. They don't like reduction of their freedom of speech. And you can go right down the list. The things that he's delivering are just not palatable to the American people. So they're saying, well, it's a communication issue. We need to really enhance his ability to provide empathy and, and uh, the support for the common man. To me, ridiculous. What? Well, yesterday, Paul Begala, a Democrat strategist, indicated that the problem wasn't with Democrat leaders. It was the problem with Democrat followers. So, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of strategy that is to attack your base rather than trying to uh, give some uh, indication that it is the, a leadership failure. But I think there's something that's being missed in this whole story. Uh. We're looking at a, a uh, an immediate, almost immediate process of negative commentary towards Biden uh, from uh, uh, CNN, from MSNBC, almost across the board, there has been an immediate willingness to attack Joe Biden, particularly on his handling of Afghanistan. Now, we know from prior history, Bob, that when this happens in the media, it is something that is dedicated to another process. The question to me, Bob, is why has the, the media and I think it's under the influence of the Democrat Party. Why has the media suddenly turned on Joe Biden? Yeah. I think in 2022, we're going to be looking at some significant events as derivatives of this turning against Biden in the media. I'm not sure exactly what they'll be, but uh, I think it is not just incidental that the entire media has simultaneously turned on Joe Biden. That's such an interesting observation. I mean, the other part of this is the messaging coming from the Democrat Party is that uh, red states are going to win the election and they're going to do it by cheating. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, again, pointing the figure, it's the, the psychological uh, tactic of projection. They're doing they're accusing uh, Republicans of doing exactly what they've been doing uh, all along. Uh, they, they've always always done that, Bob. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so what's the What are your opinions about this? Why is this happening? In terms of the media turning on Biden? Uh, yeah. Why? Why? What's uh, What's the I, end I game on this? I think it's the prelude to him uh, being removed by the Twenty Fifth Amendment or uh, him stepping down because of health issues. I think this is priming that. I uh, I I can't offer that much conjecture as to what will follow that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it'll be preceded by a replacement of Kamala Harris uh, as vice president. And then when uh, Biden is removed or steps down, either one, whoever has taken the Kamala Harris vice presidential slot will become the president. Now, we can debate forever. I mean, I'm not even sure, obviously, that I'm right about that. But I, if I build on the press is turning on Biden, I think it does indicate potentials of this sort during 2022, before the midterm elections, Bob. All right, so here's one scenario. Uh, uh, Kamala is replaced, and uh, in, in her duty to the country, Hillary Clinton uh, agrees to become the vice president of the United States, and they invoke the 25th Amendment against the president of the United States while we have President Clinton. 
You know, I, I was thinking the same thing, Bob, but I, I didn't want to bring it up for your audience. I mean, it's too early in the morning to be hit with that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but, you know, that is a strong possibility. She's been out there in the in the uh, the public eye. She's been looking like she wants to be there, Bob, in yep. terms of the uh, the presidential process. Uh, so, no, there, there's nothing that uh, is beyond that uh, that possibility. So, yeah, I mean, that is possible. I mean, we could throw Michelle Obama's name into this mix. You know, they have so few uh, true leaders in the Democrat Party right. uh, that when they start looking for uh, for answers for these things, uh, the leadership answers, I mean, uh, th- there isn't a lot to turn to. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton is there. And, uh, you know, I think she would be a strong candidate, unfortunately. Yeah. If she's running, if she's pointed into the presidency and runs in 2024, I think she would be a strong candidate for the presidency. Bob. Yeah. Uh, well, before we turn to, uh, to education, which I want to uh, get your thoughts on, uh, the, the, again, the whole notion that, uh, that uh, Biden is getting some uh, communication uh, consultation, uh, it's not the message, the way the message is being delivered. It's the message, of, and the, the uh, Democrats just don't understand that. Well, I think we can debate whether they understand it or not, but I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, the, the message is horrible, but you know, if they were to acknowledge that it's the message itself that's the problem, you're talking about the Democrat Party, their platform, right. uh, their value systems. Right. So it's very difficult for me to imagine the Democrats ever acknowledging uh, that process. You know, I think that they have a, uh, and let me just sort of make a uh, immediate leap staying with the media, staying with the Democrat Party. If we look at their normal process, Bob, the way they handle everything, the first thing they do is they create a false narrative. They then feed that false narrative to the media. The media prints that false uh, narrative. The Dems then cite, the Democrats then cite that false narrative, and the public buys it, of course, because the media would not print anything that's false. So this is a a pretty consistent model. Uh, I'm going to move now immediately into uh, where I can see that happening, and I think it's with this this drum beating that there is a significant feud between Ron DeSantis and ex-President Donald Trump. Uh, I think that uh, that uh, the drum is beating is being beaten louder and louder. Uh, I, I find that as it's a disconcerting type of uh, of uh, a rumor because I think that it is one that bothers me. It bothers me in the sense that if there is truly a feud, and I do not accept that there's truly a feud between DeSantis and Trump, if there is truly a feud between these two men, I think it is a significant. Uh, a negative for both of them. Right. Uh, I think both of them would be significantly damaged if this feud was to uh, go public and be real. But I do not accept that this is real. I think both of them are too wise uh, to be involved with this kind of, uh, of uh, interaction between them at this point in their political careers. Yeah, so, I could, I could. Uh, it's dead, Bob. I know. I just couldn't agree more. I think you're absolutely right. It's manufactured. And um, there may be a phrase or two that so that uh, evoked this kind of uh, thought process, but the, <laughs> there can't be a feud between those two guys. Unbelievable. Well, that's that's. I hope that's just. I hope it's not true. And and if there is a disagreement, there's a significant uh, difference between disagreement and feud. A feud is a Hatfield and a McCoy type of suggestion. Right. This is this is certainly not in that category. But they're going to keep playing this. I've seen eight or nine different press releases on this, and they won't give up on it because they know it is a uh, it is a good way to go in terms of their uh, their benefit derived from that, Bob. So. We're going to hear more about this. I hope that uh, actually Trump and DeSantis get together, make a public appearance together, make a statement. I know neither one is going to want to yield to these uh, to these outlandish rumors, but I think this one uh, deserves a response because it is so damaging in my estimation, Bob. Absolutely. Uh, Andy, let's move to education. Quite frankly, our educational system, I think, is uh, while we're seeing major accomplishments in Florida and uh, attempts to move forward. We're seeing recognition of problems in Virginia and other states. Irrespective of the quality of education, even since the 50s, as we've seen a decline in the United States in, in its performance against students around the world, Japan and other uh, developed countries, uh, I'd, I'd really appreciate your thoughts on the subject. Well, we... we first noticed this significantly in 1983 with the uh, Carnegie Report, uh, a nation in uh, 
they described it actually if this was going on as a result of a foreign enemy it would be considered an act of war that is the state of our educational system uh, it did improve marginally after that Carnegie report uh, but now as you're citing Bob we are slipping further and further behind the rest of the world in this in these areas we do have one state which I'll get back to that is that that seems to be getting it done in terms of education and that's Massachusetts and I think we have to understand why and I again I'll get back to that uh, you mentioned Florida and I was going to talk about this uh, as in a part but I, I think it's worth bringing in at this point uh, the Cato Institute just uh, published their overall freedom ranking of the 50 states and I think it's uh, important to note that they're they're using nine different variables, economic and, and personal freedom variables. Uh, and in terms of the top five, New Hampshire, Florida, Nevada, Tennessee, South Dakota, the bottom five, you, as well would be expected, Oregon, New Jersey, California, Hawaii, and New York. Hmm. Uh, I think when you're looking at this, the Cato Report cites the incredible movement in terms of freedom that Florida has made since 2010, the most, the most dramatic movements in terms of freedom uh, of any of the 50 states. So, uh, again, once again, I'm proud to be a citizen of Florida. Uh, I think this... Uh, this freedom uh, analysis has to be looked at and understood in terms of the variables that are being weighed, Bob. Uh, and I think it's an important type of analysis, uh, not just for political purpose, but in terms of getting America back on the right track. Uh, so I think we can draw that down from the Cato, the Cato uh, report. No, absolutely. Um, and and, and you, you, uh, we can all experience, we know, our, uh, about this freedom, and uh, we can see what's going on in the rest of the country. We're so grateful for it. And, of course, <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the, in, the measurements of, of what's going on is, of course, that U-Haul trucks are not available to come out of California to states like Texas or Florida or, or New York or New Jersey uh, because people are fleeing higher taxes and less freedom and trying to go to uh, other, quote-unquote, petri dishes where there's greater freedom in places like Florida and Texas. Well, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that, other than the fact that many of them carry their political nonsense with, as baggage with them. So uh, I think it's a, it's a dangerous possibility. I think in many cases, as we've seen in southeast Florida, uh, looking at uh, Broward and, and, and Palm Beach County and so forth, uh, these are heavy, heavily Democrat areas. And so these people leave New York and Jersey and so forth, uh, but they, uh, they leave behind taxes, perhaps but they don't leave behind their political ideology. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm concerned with these transfers of population and whether or not they'll alter the, the, the political demographics of Florida or any other state such as Texas that's being affected by this movement, Bob. Uh, good point. And yet, Andy, what we're seeing is now there's more registered Republicans in the state of Florida than there are Democrats. Going back just to 2008, there were 700,000 more uh, registered Democrats than there were Republicans. And this is after the migration. And uh, Governor DeSantis has assured it's that we're not seeing a growth in the number of blue transferees or people coming down to Florida. It's actually uh, conservatives who are coming here. Well, I'm, I'm optimistic that's the case. I just, I still believe that we have to keep an eye on that kind of migration. Um, I think it's affected Texas. I can cite Austin as, as having gone from being a, a deep red city to being a very deep blue city. Yep. All of that through migration from uh, from California, as far as I understand it, at least, Bob. Mm. So I'm concerned. I'm not suggesting this is a dire thing that should be, uh, you know, you should run uh, screaming into the woods that the sky is falling. But on the other hand, uh, I've seen too many circumstances where red states have become purple or blue based on these type of population shifts. So I'm concerned. That's that's why we leave it. Bob. All right. And I want to give our advertisers a chance to get their message out. Can we take a little break and we'll be back in just a moment? I will drink some coffee. Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees 
On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months, finally having exhausted all alternatives for pain management. Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education and the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's God's work. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josepha Savaz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be back with you, Bob. Thank you, Andy. So uh, just listening to the Optum Foundation commercial about creating and opening charter schools around the state of Florida, uh, creating school choice, uh, parental choice, which is, I think, a great thing for Florida. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm an advocate of the school choice for parents and for students. Um, my issues are with the, uh, the nature of what the educational system consists of. Uh, if we look at the, the the current system, it is generally child-centered. Now, this sounds awfully good. You know, we're going to focus on the child. The child will be the essence of the classroom. We'll allow the child to go through their natural process. <clears throat> we won't be overly concerned with content. We mm -hmm. will, and how many times have we heard, we'll just give the student the skills to learn. Now, we've all heard that. It sounds good. And it has a certain degree of truth to it. There's absolutely no, no doubt about it. But there's something that's absent from that in most of these educational models, whether it's the, the, the public schools, the universities, or even some of the charter schools who design their curriculum around the concepts that I just described. What is missing is content, content, consistent uh, scheduled content over long periods of time leading to a destination independent of the student. What do I mean by independent of the student? It is not a matter of just taking the student in at the age of five, putting them out at the age of 17, 12 years, and having them be a bigger, better model of what they were at the age of five. Right. Education should be putting content into that student. It is content content that enables them to read comprehensively it is content that enables them to think rationally it is the type of content that enables a society bob to be unified and coherent in its in its goals uh in its in its culture itself uh, and its destination so uh what i'm talking and i'm using words that are to a large extent derivatives of my teaching background but also uh, my favorite educational reform person in America, and he's often cited as the most significant educational reformer in America in the last hundred years, and that is E.B. Hirsch. 
Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with E.D. Hirsch or the audiences, uh, but he is a man that is certainly well well worth reading and being exposed to again because of his prominence let me just read uh, the two defining elements of Edie Hirsch's model and you will hear a lot of what I just said in what Hirsch says he said coherent cumulative factual knowledge is vital for reading comprehension comprehension literacy and critical higher order thinking skills uh, as an example uh, he used for example if if he just used the phrase i'm going to a tea party as simple as that phrase is the person has to know what tea is they have to know what a party is they have to know that in england a tea party has crumpets so uh, it's a very simple and, and obviously very simple example but what he is suggesting and i found this in my teaching experience that unless the person has a high level of general knowledge they cannot understand what they're reading because they can't put it into a context. So when we're looking at, and the, um, you cited it before, the decline in American lead, reading com uh, comprehension. It is not the inability to pronounce and identify the word. It is the, uh, a lack of understanding mm -hmm. of what a series of words mean in sequence, the syntax. And again, the context of those words, what do those words suggest culturally? And so when you get E.B. Hirsch, uh, his most famous book, and you probably have, have heard this, if not have read it, Bob, uh, Cultural Literacy, uh, came out in 1986. Uh, perhaps in, in that, no, no, I will tell something more definitive. In 1986, it was the largest selling book in America, huh. uh, other than the Bible, which always leads the list. So you have E.B. Hirsch, who has, in fact, authored uh, this process, and it is antagonistic uh, almost entirely to the progressive teaching model. Now, getting back to what I cited before, uh, Massachusetts has totally implemented the E.D. Hirsch models of education. They by far lead the, lead the nation in educational outcomes. We can also cite Singapore, who uses this sequential uh, design uh, organized uh, series of informations that go into a student's education uh, and Singapore leaves the world in educational outcomes. So uh, if there is a magic bullet, Bob, to America's problems, uh, I think you've almost alluded to that before, it is, it is education. But the question is not just to educate, not just to have choices. The question is where, where are you going with it? Uh, what are you doing? Uh, with the educational system. And I would cite E.B. Hirsch as the model, uh, mm. and he's well-authored, well-respected. He is the author of the process that we should use uh, in terms of the American educational system, particularly the public schools, but also the universities. The question is, how do you break through the progressive teaching models? How do you break away from whole language learning, which is a progressive model that has almost destroyed reading comprehension, and return to phonetics, which was authored by, or not authored by, but certainly supported by E.B. Hearst. How do we get rid of these, uh, these, uh, the scar tissue on the American educational system, which is damaging America, damaging our students, actually, in, uh, in the process? Bob. That is so interesting. So has Hearst developed a curriculum or developed another? Oh, absolutely. What what uh, what has uh, what has Massachusetts taken in order to to uh, have the, these outstanding results compared to other states? Well, the details are are, are really um, excruciating in the specifics. But uh, let me just tell you the general process. The general process is every school in Massachusetts, from kindergarten up through graduation, has a very specific curriculum. Every student in Massachusetts learns that specific curriculum, that knowledge. When they move into the next grade, every teacher builds on that knowledge. They know the student has been there. They know they can build on it and so forth and, and uh, on through the entire 12 years of their public school education. It isn't this helter-skelter random process of teachers teaching what they want, going in the direction that what they want, allowing their students to uh, to get grades based on projects that have no um, inclusion, basically, in the end result of education. So in, if, in a skeletal form, the answer to your question is a very tightly prescribed curriculum that each year builds upon itself, leading to a conclusion where at the end they come out as fully 
knowledgeable, and I'm going to use that word as the defining word, knowledgeable. Let, let me just uh, add something real quick. Uh, I personally have a pretty good brain. I'm, I'm not a genius, but I've got a pretty good brain. I'm my, if I was to equate it to a farmer, I've got a big silo. The question, though, is in terms of education, how much is in the silo? Mm -hmm. If you don't put a lot into the silo, Bob, it doesn't matter how big the silo is. So I'm a smart guy, but what I really uh, have as a virtue, if I might blow my own horn for a minute, I have an extremely high level of general knowledge that enables me to read comprehensively. It enables me to write comprehensively. This is the essence of the well-educated thinking person who can effectively deal with the world around them. Uh, so I believe that that was the essence of what uh, what Hirsch built in is the Massachusetts system. I think it was the basis of, of my life, actually. When I went to college, Bob, as a 17-year-old, uh, I, was, I was a smart kid even then, but I knew nothing. Well, I'll college. tell you what. I tell you, Andy, today you filled all of our silos. It was such an interesting <laughs> conversation about education, other topics, and about culture. Andy, I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to get back to education again, though. Buddy. Let's do it, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests for tomorrow's show as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.